Welcome to Ballet Initiative. I'm Christian Kudnick. On this episode, former professional dancer and renowned teacher, Finest Jung. I think you're you're really known for your teaching in modern generations or, you know, recent generations, but I'd like to get an oral history of where it comes from. And, and I know you started when you were about six years old. If we can go back and you feel up for uh, going back in time a little bit and telling us how you found ballet. Well, you know, I was born in 1937, and um, this is before, way before TV. And I was in Hawaii, you know, in Honolulu. You're in an island in the middle of the Pacific. And during World War II... So I think every Saturday we went to the movies, and, you know, then sooner or later I saw these musicals. And I guess it must have been probably a Busby Berkeley musical because of black and white and, you know, one of those typical Hollywood movies. And all I remember is, you know, these dancers in black and white, and, and I just related to that. I said, wow, you know, I would, that's what I want to do. But, of course, this is crazy because here I am, you know, a little Asian boy born to, um, my parents were actually had a tailor shop at um, Hickam Air Force Base. And no one in my family ever had any, you know, connection to the arts. And, of course, again, you know, if you can imagine, this is before TV, this is before computers. All we had were movies, you know, books, radio. Um but anyway, I, I guess I was six, and I told my parents, I said, you know, I want to I wanna go to Hollywood, and I want to go to New York, and I want to be famous. And um, so they started me with this woman. Her name was Dorothy Hellas Moots, and she had a studio, you know, in a, in a neighborhood. Uh, it was actually in a house in, in a neighborhood. And um, she had... I think studied with Rolling. I'm not sure if she really had ever danced with the Pavlova troupe or not, but she was from Colorado, and she had, you know, a typical dancer's face and, and um, you know, good body, good legs. And um, she had a group of, you know, older girls, and I, I guess they were, you know, fairly well trained, although it's so strange because then when I started, I was kind of put in with them, and I remember, you know, it was a mixed kind of class where you do, um, I cannot even remember ever working at the bar with her, um, but I know we went down the floor doing, you know, like step, hop, kick your head, and, uh, and then we did tap, I know we did that, and then I know she made up dances, uh, you know, because I, to the Blue Danube, and to, uh, I think, Grieg, something from Grieg. Um, and then, you know, she had these steps, you know, one, two, three, kick land, which is, you know, jeté entrelacé and um, perch flat, which was PK, PK turn, right? Um, and I think I just did this once a week and mainly just, you know, copying. And then I guess the six, I don't know. I know that I was kept doing this. Um, and eventually, by the time I was 11... I was partnering two little girls, you know, my age, and they were wearing point shoes. They were wearing the shoes. I wouldn't say they were dancing on them, but they were wearing them. And um, by then she had choreographed um, an invitation to the dance for us to do. And 
And um, the first time he really did this, you know, on stage for the public was at a beauty contest at the University of Hawaii. And I know the music started, and I, you know, had to come out with a grand jeté, and of course the lights went out. So I almost jumped off the stage. But anyway, things were restored, and we did it, you know, and, and that was really the first time I had um, really performed in front of people. And um, I think prior to it, as I said, I was only doing, you know, class once a week because we had no money either, so she was really just, you know, letting me come and take class. And then I developed, like, a little nightclub act because I was also studying hula because my mother was studying hula. And so I went to the studio, and there was another boy there. And um, I know we learn, you know, we learn to dance with all the different kind of, uh, they have, you know, in, in the hula, you can also dance with the sticks, you have the feathered gourd, you have the, the stones. We learned all of that. And I know I did the recital with the hula thing. But also, eventually, I just had a little act, like a little nightclub act. I remember doing it yeah, at least several times for private parties where I did um, an adagio to, I think it was Liebestrom, because by that time I had seen Anton Dolan. Dolan and Markova came to Hawaii. And it was really the first time I saw, you know, a male ballet dancer live. And um, I actually went back to meet him, and I sort of auditioned, you know, and he said, well, come and see me, you know, when you grow up. <laughs> and of course, strangely enough, later in later years, when I was with the Harkness Ballet, he came to us and set variations before, and I was in it. But anyway, going back to uh, Hawaii, so I did kind of like an adagio, uh, you know, wearing a white silk shirt and, and, and white shorts and black ballet shoes. And then um, I think I just wore the same thing, but then I would do the hula. You know, I would do some of the, the hula dancing. So I had this little act, which I could do, and I enjoyed but again, you know, there was really no no supporting atmosphere other than the teacher herself. And then I met one woman who actually came to New York. She she came to Columbia, and she was the first one that I knew. That and she said, you know, where they took ballet class every day, and that was just beyond my imagination that people did that. But anyway, so there were just bits and pieces like that, you know. And so from the first to the well, from the time I was six until eleven, I kept going. And then when I was in intermediate school, I guess probably by the fifties, I felt that it was just too strange, you know, to try to hide this fact that I liked to do ballet dancing from my friends. And so I stopped, you know, I quit, and um, I didn't. I, didn't, I don't think I went back until I went to high school, and then I finally said, you know, I really miss this. And, but again, you know, it was like a fantasy because, I mean, how can you, you know, be living in Hawaii and uh, think you're going to go to New York when you don't even know anyone or what you're going to do or how it's like, really, you know. Um, but anyway, I just had that, that, that dream, and I said, I want to go back. So I, I did go back, and I ended up dancing with the same girl who, you know, I had danced with before. And that's what we did. You know, once a week I had a class, and I would go there and uh, after school. And um, there was, again, there was really no bar, you know, uh, as we know it. And just, you know, lift my leg up in second and hop across the floor holding my leg up. And then I know we did lots of turns in second, and I know we did lots of partnering with that girl, dancing with her. Um, but, again, you know, not having any idea really what I was doing. 
Um, and then I thought, well, you know, I want to I wanna try to do this, but I know how to do it. So I started investigating colleges, and I was very good academically. And um, so I found the University of Utah because I thought, well, they have ballet, and um, they also have commercial art, and they also have journalism. Uh, because by that time, I was also writing for the school newspaper, which I eventually became an editor of. So I applied, and I got actually a $160 scholarship, can you imagine, in 1954. And this was really the deciding factor. And um, so my mother said, because she was divorced, she said, okay, you can go, but you're going to have to find a job to, you know, to pay for your room and board. Um, so I went ahead, and I don't even, even know if when I went there whether I had it or not, but I had a couple of other scholarships. So I did. I went to Utah, and um, I ended up being a night telephone operator, which paid for my room and board. But there I met uh, Bill Christensen, Mr. C. And the first time I went to the, to the ballet studio, I mean, there was Michael Smilin and Ken Stoll and uh, these other guys. The first time I saw all these guys, you know, wearing tights and, and, and doing ballet dancing. So it was just like a, a revelation, you know, for me to see, wow, you know, here are these, these guys and they're doing <laughs> ballet dancing and they can do all this stuff. So anyway, it was at Utah that I, I started to learn for the first time technique. You know, I mean, I had never heard of frappe or fondue or anything like that. Um, <clears throat> and I... In the ballet program there, uh, we also had, let's see, the ballet class every day. And then I know we had the, then once a week he had the pot de class, partnering. And then twice a week, um, Mr. C gave us character dancing, which was wonderful because, um, you know, you do the Russian dance, we, had, we did the charters, mazurka, we did Spanish. I mean, he could do all of that, you know. And uh, so this, is, I mean, actually was really great for me because he, Bill Christensen had, performed in vaudeville with his brothers, Lou and Harold. And um, he could still, he could do everything. He could pirouette, he could do double tours, you know, and so he could show everything. And uh, he was very musical. But most of all, you know, he, he knew what it was to perform because they had been in vaudeville. So he always, eventually, um, you know, this is my first year, but eventually Michael Smewin and Kensel left. They went on to San Francisco Ballet. So then I became, actually, by the time I finished, my, my third year there, I was already a principal dancer. And I did, I did the lead in Copelia. I did Franz. It was my first full-length ballet. <clears throat> and, um, you know, the whole thing, the park ring and blah, blah, blah. So I was able to learn that much, you know, in, in, in three years. But it was really because of Bill. Because, and he would say, you know, when you're park ring, you have to show your teeth and and he said, now we're going to do these turns in second because when you do these, some little old lady in the balcony is going to start clapping for you. So he was, everything we did was, you know, for the audience. And all of his ballets, everything moved across the stage. And, and there was a wide, you know, variety of, of, of ballets that we did. And um, so I had such a good grounding. But again, you know, when I left in 1959, I, I, I wanted to go to New York, but again, I had no idea. You know, how would I do this? Uh, because, again, we really still had no money, you know. And um, so also at that time, this was 1959, 
um, and there were all different kinds of wars, right in Germany, whatever. Um, so I went in the National Guard for six months because you had to do something. And, um, oh, I know, somewhere along the, maybe in, maybe that summer before I went in, I know I went to California because the New York City Ballet was performing at the Greek Theater. And um, <clears throat> I think Janet Reed was still there. Maybe she was a ballet mistress. And she had danced for Bill. So somehow was arranged that I could audition. I could take the company class. And so I did. That was the first time I met Eddie Villella. And uh, here I'm wearing these red tights. You know, I, mean, I had no idea what I was doing. Um, but anyways, uh, you know, I, of course, I didn't get accepted. And, um, but that's the first time I met Susie Bure. And uh, Allegra did um, The Seven Deadly Sins. And I know they did Stars and Stripes. So it was really eye-opening, though, for me to, to see that. But I still had no idea, you know, how would I go to New York? What would I do? So anyway, while I was in the National Guard, I ended up as a clerk typist, because I was also the fastest typist in the U.S. Army. I could type 100 words a minute on one of those big Underwood typewriters. So I'm in Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri, in the middle of winter, and I get a telegram um, from Rogers and Hammerstein saying that um, there's a possibility I could join Flower Drum Song on Broadway. So they flew me up, and quickly, of course, I tried to get back in shape, you know. And uh, I auditioned, um, and he said, okay, you got it, because all, we were looking for an Asian boy. At that time, we were called Orientals, you know, um, who can do double tours. So I had to do a glissade capriole, assemblée, double tour, and then finish with pirouette. So that was the main thing I had to be able to do. And so they said, <clears throat> okay, when the day you're out of the Army, you just, you're going to come to New York, and we're going to put you in the show. And so that's what happened in February of 1960. I got out of the Army, and I flew to New York, and they <clears throat> had me watch the show. I think it was maybe Saturday or something like that. And I learned the variation, and then that next Monday or Tuesday night, I was dancing on Broadway. I was doing the, the, the ballet variation. And, of course, I was next to George Lee, who could, you know, jump to the moon. I mean, he was like a, a rubber ball. You know, and here I am after not being in shape and having to double carry all and trying to match his elevation. Anyway, uh, that was it. But what happened is then in New York I discovered Madame Periaslavic at the old ABC, ABT studios. And, you know, she was this short little woman, but, you know, beautifully made up, and, and she had all the Russian accent and, and you know, just uh, flutter her eyes, and, and, and she was, had this pianist named Vali who came into the room, you know, with, you know, about three pounds of ballet books to, to play. But anyway, at this time, Madame Periaslavic was, you know, the diva teacher in New York, and, and, and all the principal dancers, whenever the Royal Ballet came, you know, Margot Fontaine, Anthony Dahl, everybody was in class. And I would stand next to Violette Verdi, and, you know, and Millie Hayden, and I stood behind Alonso at the bar, <clears throat> Royce Fernandez, and so it's really, you know, quite thrilling. And she loved me, you know, she would call me fine. She wouldn't call me, but she said, fine. Of course, the only problem was that she really insisted that I, you know, just force everything. So she would come and, and kick my feet together into this tight fit position, and she would 
grab my rib cage and pull my ribs up and push my bottom under. And so the result is that, you know, she wanted me to be this perfect, in this perfect Russian form, which really wasn't me, and Bill Christensen had never insisted on it. Well, what happened is, is in my efforts to, to please her, I completely lost touch with my body. You know, I was so pulled up, I was like floating in the air, you know. And I started to lose everything. You know, I lost my pirouette, and then the worst of all, here I'm on stage, and I'm going falling all over the stage at the St. James Theater, you know, in a panic, because... I, I had lost my grounding, you know, I, I, I couldn't, um, whereas before I never thought about double tours, I could just do them, you know, and everything. So it was like a double-edged sword, because I loved her, and she was inspiring, you know, and I loved her class, but she was just, you know, she really destroyed my technique. So by the time we, Florida Song went on the road, and I was going to go with him, they'd be close to New York, and then I know he went to Detroit, and... Chicago and the World's Fair, whatever, Dallas Fair, something like that. And then we ended up in, we were in L.A., and then we ended up in San Francisco in the fall of 1960, and there was Michael Sneelan and and Kent. They were in the company. So Michael said, you know, you've got to come and take class and let Lou see you, and that was Lou Christensen, who was directing the company. So I took class, and, 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 and Lou said, you know, yeah, we know we'd love to have you in the company. So they hired me, and I left Largeum, and I did my nutcracker in San Francisco. Of course, the only problem, again, was I still really didn't have my double tours. And I had to do the, the Russian dance in Nutcracker with Michael Smeelan, who, again, you know, could jump and turn forever. And the other problem is that we had to do the Russian dance with these sticks with ribbons. So that they were like batons with ribbons, which we had to twirl. And you have to do, you know, saute, saute, assemble, double tour, holding both arms above your head so the ribbons would fly around. So here I am on the stage of the San Francisco Opera House, which is huge. And you look out the audience, you just see this black pit. And I was just going all over the place, you know, just totally out of my way. And every day I would go back to the studio and I would practice and I could do it. In the studio, when I looked at myself, the once I got on the stage, I just lost it. So I was really, I mean, I did everything to just about fall flat on the floor, you know. So it was just such a nerve-wracking time for me. And um, I stayed with the company in San Francisco. But I, I mean, I, I really didn't like it at all because um, Harold Christensen would teach, and he was just so dry. Everything was eight grand pieds, eight Eight of this, eight of that, just eight, eight, eight. No port of no arms, nothing, just, just legs and hips. And after Madame Periaslavic, you know, it was just like night and day. So I really was not happy there. Um, although, I mean, I liked loose choreography. You know, that was good. And I became a soloist there. <clears throat> anyway, in, by 1962, there was a lot of discontent because we weren't making much money and everybody got itchy feet. So, you know, at that time, uh, Michael left, Ken Stoll, well, Ken came to New York, he joined City Ballet, and uh, Mike came with his wife, Paula Smeelan, but they couldn't get into the company because they were, they were, he was too short. So they ended up making a nightclub act, but later on they did join ABT. But anyway, I um, <clears throat> had contacted someone I knew from Utah who was now living in New York, who actually connected me with Flarjum's song, and um, he was studying at the Joffrey School. 
So he said, well, you know, Robert Joffrey is going to go to Seattle for the Seattle World's Fair to choreograph AIDA. So we, I connected enough, and so Bob Joffrey said, well, you wait for me in Seattle, and let me look at you, and if, you know, and if I can use you, then, then you'll do the opera with us. So uh, the San Francisco Ballet, because we had just performed there, finished. And so I stayed in Seattle, I think, for maybe two weeks by myself. It was really scary because, you know, again, I had no money. I was living in this really dreadful, I don't know, rooming house or something, just waiting for Bob Joffrey to come. So they did come, and I did take class, and that's where I first met Helgi Thomason, uh, Vicente Nabreda, and Nels Jorgensen. And Jerry Arpino, of course. So Bob said, yeah, okay, well, you know, you're good. And in fact, you know, he, I don't know if it was because I was Asian or whatever, but he told me, look at the way he concentrates, you know. He would tell. So anyway, we did. We, we did the, the AIDA. That was the first time I met Francesca Corco, who was this little girl who could turn, 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 turn. And um, after the opera, Bob said, yeah, you know, come back to New York and, and I'll, I'll hire you for the company. So I went back to New York, and actually, Helgi and I, actually, we stayed in the apartment of this, of this boy, Jamie, uh, what was his name? Anyway, the boy I met in Utah. And we were in St. Mark's Place, and um, taking the, some of the classes at the old Joffrey Studio, well, it was always still there, uh, in the heat of summer, you know. And it was just so hot. But there was Bob, and... Um, then we we went up to Watch Hill, which is the first time that um, the company was sponsored by Rebecca Harkness. So we went up to her her estate in Watch Hill, Rhode Island, and there I met you know Larry Rhodes and uh, Lisa Bradley, Elizabeth Carroll. That was the first Brunilda Ruiz, Paul Sutherland, and so it was really quite an exciting time because there was so many good dancers and. Um, and actually, that was the first time that Alvin Ailey choreographed the ballet. He did Feast of Ashes for the company. That was really crazy because Alvin had us try all kinds of lifts, you know, with a, hanging the girl from our arm and, and having her stand on our shoulder in Arabesque Ponche and walking on the stage, you know, holding her arms up, but with a girl in Arabesque on your shoulder while you're walking. But anyway, so we had a showing. Um, and Brian McDonald, I think, did Time Out of Mind at the Fashion Institute. We did this uh, in the fall. <clears throat> and, you know, started to get well, people were excited, you know, about what we were doing. And then, of course, we began the, the State Department-sponsored tours, uh, you know, going to um, Portugal. I think the first one we were in um, Portugal, the Near East. Anyway, during a period from 62 to 64, this was the Joffrey Ballet and doing State, Depart State Department-sponsored tours, right? We were in Russia, and actually we were in Kiev, you know, when Kennedy was assassinated. And the Russian people were just, you know, they would come up to us with tears in their eyes, and they, they just, you know, felt so sorry. They were so sympathetic. But it was quite a thing, you know, to dance in Russia at that time. You know, you go, you look in the grocery store and you see one cabbage in the window. You know, this is the middle of winter. Um, 
but the people were wonderful, you know, wonderful audiences. And um, after Russia, we went to, uh, we were in India for seven weeks, so completely different, right, in the heat. But we were very lucky because we, with the Joffrey uh, under Rebecca Harkness, we danced in Syria, Lebanon, Afghanistan, Iran, you know, places you, you can't go to now. Um, Romania, Germany. Anyway, after our... I can't remember if that was the last time. No, no. Um, anyway, again, with, with, with Bob Joffrey, it was very hard, you know, working for Bob because he was just very particular and he wanted to know everything about everyone. And so you really felt he kept putting the braces on you, you know. So there were a lot of us, actually, you know, and, and, and really the story about this is not that Rebecca Harkness um, stole us from him, but really we, you know, were just not happy. The people who ended up going to the Harkness Ballet, Larry Rhodes and Helgi, um, it was just hard. You know, we weren't happy working for Bob. You know, he would sit in the front row with binoculars, with his assistant next to him, you know, watching everything we did. And so you're under such scrutiny all the time, so you're under a lot of pressure. So we were, were ready to, to leave. And um, so, of course, we expressed this to, to the management. And this is where then uh, Rebecca's manager at that time was Jean Owen, uh, Chironi. It was a wonderful man. And so he said, well, maybe we should start a company, you know. And so he said, great, you know. And that is actually how the Harkness Ballet came about. But it's not because it wasn't her idea to take us away. She didn't steal us. You know, we were ready to leave. And we left of our own accord, actually. So then we began the Harkness years when? 65, I think, maybe 65, 69, and again... Uh, you know, at Watch Hill, and uh, also with the Joffrey and the Harkness, when we weren't um, traveling internationally, we were riding a bus across the United States. I mean, we would go out for, I don't know, three, four months maybe, uh, you know, one night stands, and maybe four to five cities a week. And uh, that was really something, you know, uh, which probably most dancers today don't ever get to experience. You know, you learn to sleep on a bus, but also you dance on small stages, big stages, slippery stages. You know, you just do it, and and you don't you don't get sick, you don't get injured because you can't because there's nobody to take your place. So it's really good training, you know. Um, <clears throat> but anyway, with the Harkness, then of course there I met Eric Brune, and he became he he mentored me too. I mean, he he showed me how to make up, and he let me watch what he did with himself and how he prepared. And, uh, you know, when he did Flower Festival, he tied red ribbons around his elbow and his wrist, and I said, why are you doing that? He says, well, because something has to move when you do Bournemouthville, you know, because of the arms being held in position. Um, but things like that, you know, which you would never think about. But he was uh, incredible. You know, when Eric walked on the stage, you know, your jaw just dropped because he was just so handsome, so beautiful. And, of course, you know, he really challenged himself. He was probably the first male dancer to, to make himself do things to the right and then to the left, you know, as opposed to the old Russian way where everything goes one direction. <clears throat> 
And um, just his, the way he made up, you know, one night he'd comb his hair this way, the next night he'd do it another way. But he was just the, the total artist, you know. And um, anyway, with the Harkness, we ended up going to Egypt. She flew us down to the Valley of the Kings. We went to Tutankhamun's tomb. Uh, you know, rode the camels, did the pyramid, did the whole bit, you know. Uh, we were in Morocco, Tangiers. We ended up in Hawaii. I got to dance for my... <laughs> That's the first time my, my classmates, who never knew what I was doing, saw me dance. Um, but anyway, it was, it was quite a time, and there, you know, and, and, and we, that's how Stanley Williams came to America. He came to teach us, actually, with the Joffrey. And then later on, <clears throat> Madame Volkova came, and she was just wonderful, you know, such a sweet one, very considerate teacher. And then when we were with the Harkness in, on the Riviera, we studied with Rosella in her studio in Cannes, and she was wonderful. In fact, she was the first teacher completely the opposite of Madame Periaslavic, you know, who wore her shiny tap shoes and was just perfectly turned out and, and wore her black slacks and her makeup. Rosella just was very no makeup, <clears throat> floppy ballet shoes, and she didn't stand in a perfect first position, turned out. And I thought, wow, that's interesting. <clears throat> Here's a teacher who doesn't think she needs to be, you know, turned out. And she would, Rosella would just keep saying, Ekilib, Ekilib, you know, means balance, balance and very calm and very quiet in her class. But it, uh, she has influenced me, actually, in, in my teaching, as has Madame Volkova and, and Eric, you know, and Bill Christensen. Um, but in terms of, you know, thinking about what you're doing and um, that you can work quietly and that there's a mental process going on. <clears throat> so anyway, after... In the Harkness Ballet, you know, we were in residence in Monte Carlo, which is quite a glamorous place, you know, and we were dancing in the casino, in the theater, you know, where uh, in the red shoes, you know, she runs out of the hall and jumps off into the railroad track. Um, and we were in that famous studio, you know, where the Ballet Ruse had been. Um, so, you know, we were always really, you know, living the history. Um, but anyway, in 1969, I had become a Buddhist, and I was lying by the swimming pool, you know, taking because I was a principal dancer by then. So I didn't have to rehearse all day because I just did the white tights ballets, which is also interesting too because my dreams came true. You know, when I when I was in Utah, when I was first in Utah, Michael Smeon said, <clears throat> "Well, you know, you're never going to be a classical dancer because you're Oriental and you're bow-legged and you're short." So that didn't make me feel good. But actually, you know, by 1969, I only wore white tights, and I, and I did the classical roles, you know, with, with Elke Thomason and Larry. So anyway, I was lying by the swimming pool, and I was thinking, what am I doing here, you know, lying by the swimming pool? I'm not doing anything for world peace. So I got in my mind that I said, let me go back to New York. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quit and I'm going to become a full-time Buddhist. So we had our season in New York in, in the spring of 69, I think. And Larry, by that time, was the director, Larry Rhodes, and I said, I'm, I'm going to stop dance, you know, because I'm just thinking it's time for me to do something else. So I quit, and um, 
by that time I had also <clears throat> collected a lot of books and I had I had taken films of Eric Brune, you know, performing on stage. But I said, you know, I have to I have to purge myself. I think I need to to make sure if I'm going to devote my life to Buddhism, and this is Nietzsche and Shoshu Buddhism, um, I need to be no one, you know. I, I can't be a ballet dancer. So I took all the films and all my books and all my pictures, and I burned them. I burned everything that I had because um, <laughs> I said, now I'm just nobody. And I went to work in an office. So from 69 to 72, I worked for a, a private investor. His name was Myron Piker. Um, I mean, who was a wonderful person, because, I mean, who would hire a former ballet dancer to be your secretary, you know? But I could type, you know, and I could do all of that. So anyway, it allowed me to really become, you know, a religious fanatic And um, in our Buddhism then. You know, this was also the time of Woodstock and walking on the moon. So... You know, uh, to talk about world peace was not really so far-fetched, you know. And plus, it was a time, you know, of dropping acid and all that, which which I never did. But anyway, um, so during those years, I worked in the office from 9 to 5, and then every night I had a Buddhist meeting, and, you you know, you go on the street, and you try to drag people into the apartment to convert them. I mean, that's your, you know, your reason for being. Anyway, by 19... So, and I completely left the ballet world. You know, I never went to the ballet. I never spoke to anyone. I never saw any. My life was Buddhism 7, 7, 24-7. But in 1972, my, my boss said, I'm going to close the office, so you're going to need to find a job. So I asked my Buddhist leader, well, what should I do? And he said, well, why don't you teach ballet? Which had never occurred to me. So I called Wilson Morelli, who had a studio on 14th Street, because I had met him in Los Angeles. He said, yeah, you know, come and take a look. So I went to watch the ballet class, and I stood, and I sat, and I said, oh, my God, I don't remember any of this. I don't know what these steps are called. What are they doing? So I had to go to the bookstore, and I had to buy books so that I could study and recall, you know, the vocabulary and the steps. When I first started teaching, everything was in three, four, because I, <laughs> I couldn't figure anything else out. So I started teaching in 72, uh, which is also actually when I got married to a fellow Buddhist, a Japanese woman. Um, and um, I started teaching, and, and the first time I taught, I had four students, and I said, well, clearly this is a mistake. I'm not going to make a living like this. Um, but I was a Buddhist, so I said, okay, we can work this out. And um, soon, actually my first students, I think, were from Paul Taylor, this was in the Kent, and what was his name? Uh, Nicholas, Nicholas. And actually he brought Paul to class. And then um, the ballet dancers started coming. You know, I remember there was Bia Rodriguez and, even Martine came, and, you know, they started to come. And oh, you know what came to my class? Billy Forsythe. Billy Forsythe, you know, the famous William Forsythe, sure. was then uh, dancing in a, uh, in a little touring, six dances called Ballet Brio. And they traveled, you know, across the U.S., and he would do Don Q, and whatever. there were six dances. And um, he was in my first classes. 
And it was from there that he went on to, to Stuttgart, you know, and then eventually became what he is today. Uh, but anyway, by... I started in March of 72. By the fall of 72, my classes were... They were too big uh, for the studio. And um, so I ended up leaving, and I... I made it my first studio on my own. I think it was on 72nd Street, above the Royal Pastry Shop. So you walk up. It's a little tiny, you know, like 20 feet wide um, in a brownstone. So we called it the landing strip because, you know, 20 feet wide and, and about maybe 40, 50 feet deep. And above the Royal Pastry, so there were so many cockroaches in the studio. But this is when, you know, I had all the, the ABT dancers, and this is when um, I met Christine Redpath, and then Stephanie Salan came, and then all the ABT people, Chuck Ward, Clark Tippett, uh, all the people who were dancing at that time, and plus the Harkness, the people who had done the Harkness dances, they came to my class. So at that time in New York, David Howard was still teaching, I think he was still at the Harkness house, and... We hadn't heard of Maggie Black yet. There was no step studio. There was no Perry dance. Uh, so after, I think in 74, I moved up to my bigger studio on Broadway in 77, which is really a wonderful studio, wonderful space, tall, you know, big ceilings, uh, high ceilings, big windows. And at that time, then it was David. Then he had moved to a studio next to State Theater. And Maggie, by that time, was really big. You know, she had these huge classes. So really, at that time, it was was David and Maggie and me. I mean, we were the three big ballet teachers. And so when I started up there, and then I had all the Twyla Tharp people and and, uh, the Graham people and, um, uh, of course, the Taylor, the Taylor Company through the years, Chris Gillis, all those wonderful people. as well as the ballet dancers, you know, from City Ballet, ABT, and, from, and the Joffrey, a lot of the Joffrey dancers came. So from 74 to 86, 87, I had my big studio. And, of course, you know, I kind of went off track in 82, 83, because I thought, well, why don't I make a little chamber ballet company? Um, and don't even ask me why I did that, because, you know, I ended up spending $100,000 on it. Anyway, by that time, I also had a, a son, Jason. Well, actually, my first son, my first Jason, we had a, a baby in 1974, 73, 75, 74, I think. And that child, at three weeks, developed meningitis and died. So uh, also experienced, you know, this horrible tragedy of, you know, losing your first child. But then two years later, we called him again the same name, Jason. We had the second Jason, and and today he's 36, and he's good. He's a baseball. He works at Major League Baseball, and we get along very well. Um, Anyway, I divorced him also in 86. So what happened is after, you know, a period of these these, these huge classes and all of that, um... By 86, also, I was one of the first to, um, to bring in people teaching what was called the Nicholas Technique. Richard Nicholas had kind of, well, he created his own technique, but it's really a lot like Pilates, what we think is Pilates. 
And so I was the first studio to actually bring those classes in. And they were huge, you know, because then a lot of actors, and, you know, because on the Upper West Side, you've got these actors and musicians. So while I had those teachers there teaching, everything was okay. But then, of course, the, the last teacher to do that ended up quitting and going around the corner and opening his own studio. So there went, you know, a third or a half of my income for the studio. And um, so I found, I said, I can't pay the real estate taxes. So I started to think, you know, I would be, I was so desperate. I even remember I would walk up and down Broadway pasting flyers on the lampposts you know, and trying different kinds of classes in the morning, whatever, you know, to try to bring in more people. But because you just can't have, you know, a ballet class in the morning and one in the afternoon and one in the evening, and that's not going to pay your rent. So I got very, and at that same time in 86, my wife and I finally saw that we were just without, because we left the Buddhist organization. And um, we just didn't know who we were. You know, we were without world peace in the Buddhist organization. We really had nothing in common. So we divorced, and I took custody of my son, Jason. At the same time, the ballet company, Chamber Ballet USA, it had a mild success, you know, but it was just, with $100,000 I put into that company, I could have bought, you know, a beautiful apartment. But anyway, I, I didn't do that. And so I was just, you know, between the divorce and the company and spending $100,000 on it, <clears throat> I just was thinking, wow, you know, I think the ballet bus is over in New York. I should maybe try to go to Hawaii and teach. And um, I actually did try to do that, but the university wouldn't hire me. They felt I was, I was too far ahead of what they were doing there. So at the same time, um, Richard Elner, who was the owner of the Broadway Dance Center, where Fran Catchett was teaching, came to me and he said, you know, why don't you just come and teach for me and I'll take over your studio and you just go and put your money in the bank every week. Well, I was, I didn't know what to make of it because I had never worked for anyone else, right? But actually he was right. I, I, made, I made a lot of money. And my classes again, because uh, when this started to happen, this is when Jerome Robbins Broadway was going on. So all the gypsies had to get into shape, you know. And so yeah, my classes were packed. I mean, we had to give out tickets, you know, because uh, there just wasn't room. And if you didn't do that, people would just sneak into the class. So the limit was 65 people in class. But here are all the gypsies, you know, and uh, everyone you saw in Jerome Robbins Broadway. Anyway, that turned out to be a really good move for me at Broadway Dance Center, and um, um, it was a good schedule, and uh, the money was really good. And what happened then, a couple of years later, this uh, a woman who was in my class came up to me, and she said, you know, why don't you be more commercial? And I said, well, what do you mean? She said, why don't you make videos, you know, for teachers like me, meaning... She was not a ballet dancer. Um, she had uh, a, a studio in a shopping mall in Brick, New Jersey. Her name was Denise Danielle. And tell me how to make my kids look good. You know, tell me what to do, because, you know, I don't know how to teach ballet. Tell me what I need to do. <clears throat> so I said, really? So I started um, 
for you to think, okay, I'm going to make the video for teachers. I'm going to teach them what I think is missing, what they need to know. And so these first videos were really about learning how to connect the movements. And, um, and I started to do things, you know, like overcrossing the fifth position, which is not taught in any book. But if you watch, if you look at dancers who really dance across the stage, you'll see that they're doing things that are not taught in the classroom. When I, well, actually, I should go, tell you, go back, because even in my other studio, as I was teaching, I kept investigating, you know, how come some people can do things and others can't? And um, um, I had also, when I was with the Harkness Ballet, uh, you know, which is why David Howard came to New York, he came to learn what was then called the Neyland Technique from Joanna Neyland. And she was this woman who had taken the time to, to think, well, why? How come some people jump and how come some people can't? And why can some people turn and others can't? And so she actually gave us some lectures at Harkness where she showed, you know, here's this dance and you'll notice what she's doing. And this is how she takes off from the floor, you know, like thinking like a guy with a pole, uh, pole vaulter. And how she steps out and she's leaning back to go in the air. And then when she turns, she's, she's coiling, she's spiraling her body. And, you know, this was like heresy. I mean, no one had ever talked about ballet like that. But I thought it was really fascinating because as a Buddhist, you know, I could be open to anything. So when David Howard was brought here to learn her technique and teach it, and so this is actually what benefited me enormously because in my last years in the Harkness, David was my coach, and he would give me private classes, you know, every day because I had nothing else to do <laughs> except have private class. And then, you know, when I performed, he would come back after the show and he'd say, you know, you need to just bring the shoulder back a little bit more, you know, do this. Because I could do double to a right, double to a left, you know, without stopping. Um, but anyway... So going back to uh, um, the good Broadway dance center, um, and she said, you know, Miss make make a video. So I did, and it started to take off, and I could see that that teachers, a lot of them, you know, they weren't all ballerinas, and they had always had questions and thought, well, you know, how can we do it like this? So eventually, this was 1995, and so since then I've made about 43 videos. More than that, actually, because some I don't sell anymore. <clears throat> but um, what I was going to say earlier, back uh, when I had my studio, I started studying. How come Barishnikov jumps? You know, what is he doing? Um, and then I looked at Suzanne Farrell doing Mozartiana with Ibanison, and I looked in slow motion. And I said, oh, my gosh, look what she's doing. Here she is in point shoes and her tutu and her earrings, and, and she's spiraling, and they're both looking at each other, and they both look like they're in a second position with their arms open. And then they both do three pirouettes facing each other. I said, you know, that's not taught in class. Um, so it was at the Broadway dance that actually that I started to bring out these new theories, you know. And um, they, they, they accepted it. They said, yeah, it makes sense, you know. And um, so through the years, I've continued, you know, making videos basically for teachers, but also what happened is that in the late, well, the first, yeah, late 90s, early 2000s, I started doing um, conventions and doing a lot of traveling to schools all over. And I would see that, my gosh, you know, I hear all these, these kids, they're dancing, but they don't know what they're doing. You know, they, they don't know how to stand up, they don't know how to plie, you know, and they're, they're just so inconsistent. And so that 
you know, I would come back and I would think, well, what do they need to know? What is it that they're missing? And so that has kind of become my, my goal, my reason for being, is to try to, to educate people, you know, and say, listen, this is what really matters, you know. Uh, and things like um, the thought that when you're on the stage, you're really always dancing on one leg, so let's concentrate on that. You know, I mean, it's not about standing in fifth position. And most of the audience doesn't even know what fifth position is, and they could care less. All they want to know is how come you're falling over? You know, so how come you can't jump? How come you can't turn? How come you look so constipated when you're dancing? Um, so I've tried to, to address myself to those things. And in later years, you know, recently, everything I do now, I try to be even more explicit. You know, put your shoulder here, and this is the proper sequence of movement. So it's like making recipes. You know, I say you can... You don't know how to cook, but if you get a good recipe and you really follow it exactly, you will be a great cook. And I say the same thing with the class. I say you may not be naturally talented or anything, but if you learn to do these movements in the proper sequence, you can turn. You know, and I have, I have, uh, I just have been doing some intensives lately at the 80s studio on Sundays, and I have adult beginners who never dance ever in their life. You know, they take my beginner class, um, but in this past intensive, some of them, they're doing pirouettes from fifth position. They're doing full turns, and they had never done this before, simply because they're just following the instructions. And so um, I'm so glad right now, actually, I, I actually ended up now where I only teach adult beginners at the Ailey Extension in New York, and I'm just so happy for that because it just is exactly where I need to be. Um, you know, I'm 76 years old now, so um, I can't keep doing double tours and double sort of Basque anymore. I don't do those anymore. So I'm teaching at a level that I am physically able to teach. But more than that, when you're working with adult beginners, and they're so pure, you know, I call them my adult babies, because they want so badly to learn and they appreciate it so much. For a lot of them, they feel it's like a meditation that completely takes their mind off of whatever else is going on in their life. But if you can teach people who have no physical skill, uh, the wrong physique, actually, you know, and they're kind of old and kind of stiff, but if you can teach them how to balance and how to turn and how to move gracefully across the floor, then you can basically you can teach anyone. And so they really provide me with the um, the ideas and the um, kind of like the inspiration, you know, for for my videos. Plus, besides the teachers, a lot of people who buy my videos are people who used to dance, and um, now they have you know family or people who live far away from big cities, so there, there, there are no studios for them to go to. So they dance at home, you know, with my videos. And I have people, you know, all over the world who, who use my videos. Um, and I, I basically, the thing I'm trying to, to educate people, I'm trying to make ballet <clears throat> available to them, you know, um, because so many people really love it, you know, and they've always wanted to do it, and so it's giving them some happiness, you know, and, and fulfillment, and that, and that makes me happy, you know, plus, you know, it, 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 it provides a good income for me. Um, 
fact, I just shot my newest video called Ballet Bar Stretch and Strength, which is kind of like the bar that I give to my advanced beginners at the 80s studio. But the main thing that I, I try to do is to strengthen people because, um, you know, everybody's getting older. That's one thing for sure, right? And as you get older, you look at people, older, they're all start getting smaller and hunched over, and, and then, you know, they twist their ankle, they fall, and they break their hip. And so thinking of that, you know, I'm trying to give people a way to, to strengthen themselves and, and improve their balance and their flexibility and their coordination, plus uh, giving them some aesthetic pleasure in dancing to music. Um, so I'm thinking of that too. That that uh, that more and more people, you know, because uh, the baby boomers and the senior citizens are gonna are the largest population group, right? Um, as well as that, these are the people who have the time, who have the money, who have the interest, and um, so I'm trying to give them things that they can that they can use, you know, to keep themselves healthy. And, keep themselves happy at the same time it, it, it all comes back to me you know uh, I, I feel very fortunate to be where I am I mean my health is good and um, I'm taking care of myself every day and I have my whole regime you know <laughs> I mean as you get older you have to do maintenance every day I mean you can't let a day go by where you don't do something uh, I just got off the bike you know and I do my stretches and um, Plus, I do. I'm still doing. I'm still a Buddhist. You know, I don't. I don't participate publicly. I don't go to the groups, but I do. I sit in front of my altar every morning. I have a room in my house where I do this, and it's you know a place for me to to refocus and to reassess what I'm doing, <clears throat> and to you know to to chart my future. You know that. Um, so as I'm 76 now, I tell people, oh, maybe you got another 20 years of me, but maybe that's it after that. I don't know. You know, I don't know how far I can do this. But in any case, um, doing the video work that I can always continue to do, and maybe you know, I'll be writing a book. I'll be doing something. Um, so anyway, what else? you want to ask me anything? <laughs> I sure do. I sure do. This is perhaps the easiest interview I've ever conducted, by the way, Finest. <laughs> That concludes part one of my conversation with, well, let's call that an oral history delivered by Finest Jug. In part two, you can hear our conversation. Ballet Initiative is a nonprofit organization based in America's heartland, St. Louis, Missouri. Our mission is to teach dancers to dance and to raise the profile of ballet. Take a look at BalletInitiative.com, Facebook, and Twitter for details on our winter and summer intensive programs for students. If you'd like to listen to the Ballet Initiative podcast on the go, you can have the show delivered directly to your smartphone for free by using the iTunes and Stitcher apps. My thanks to Finest Jung. Until next time, for Ballet Initiative, I'm Christian Kudnick. <laughs>